NPR. Darian Woods. Alexei Horowitz-Ghazi. It's good to see you here. Fancy seeing you here outside a gigantic strip mall. Like, decently fancy strip mall out in Bayside, Queens. We've got, uh, we got some meme stock in the distance. I see an AMC theater. We have five guys. We have IHOP. We have Home Goods. We have Verizon. We have J.Crew. We have Starbucks. We have Panera Bread. We are here with a higher cause in mind. We have a goal to look for America. <laughs> We're in search of America. We're on kind of a socioeconomic safari this evening. This is the Indicator from Planet Money. I'm Darian Woods. And I'm Alexi Horowitz-Ghazi from over at Planet Money. You hear a lot these days about this super important ingredient for helping people move up the economic ladder. And that idea is economic mixing, when the rich and the poor and the middle come together to make friends. But is this real? And can we see it happening out there in the world? In the economic savannah. Exactly. So today on the show, where do Americans actually come together to make pals across socioeconomic lines? We're going to get out into the field after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from our sponsor, Whole Foods Market. Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th with savings on animal welfare certified bone-in beef short ribs, sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, and more regionally inspired selections. Find sales on robust handcrafted Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. Plus, visit the bakery and grab a delicious olive bull bread. Taste the Mediterranean at Whole Foods Market. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Comcast Business. Is it possible to get business internet you can really rely on? It is with Comcast Business. Keeping businesses of all kinds up and running with a network powered by 99.9% reliability. Plus, advanced security to help outsmart threats to your data. And 24-7 customer support to help anytime. With Comcast Business, reliable business internet isn't just possible, it's happening. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary. There is a growing body of evidence that living in a neighbourhood with a lot of friendships across income levels matters a lot for social mobility. We've previously covered this research, which was led by economist Raj Chetty. But that raises the question, where does this social mixing actually happen? And we started our research in that strip mall because of what we heard from Maxim Masenkoff. Maxim is an assistant professor of economics at the Naval Postgraduate oh, School. Hey, Darren. Hi, how are you? Maxim and his co-author Nathan Wilmers noticed that during the pandemic, Google, Apple, and Meta were releasing huge amounts of location data from people's cell phones. This was meant for public health reasons, but they thought they could use it to answer economic questions as well. It's just really amazing that you could see where people are going. And so we wanted to use this data to just look at where people basically are most likely to encounter somebody who is different from themselves. And before you start wrapping your phone in tinfoil, they didn't have access to specific individuals' locations. They could just see how many people from various neighborhoods were in a particular location. So how many people from a wealthy neighborhood were at a park, or how many people from a low-income neighborhood were at a movie theater? Maxim and his co-author divided people into five groups based on how wealthy their neighborhoods were. And then they looked at schools, fast food restaurants, transport centers, and they ranked the locations by how much you saw a mix of people from different neighborhoods. The first thing I was really curious to look at was churches, because religious institutions are, are open to 
everyone. And we found that churches actually tend to isolate people a little bit more than their typical visit to something like, say, a, a retail store or a restaurant. Out of all the categories, religious institutions had a pretty low amount of mixing, though supermarkets were lower. It was somewhat surprising, uh, but one of the things we can see in the data is how far people are traveling to go to church. And people just tend to go to churches that are nearby. And so proximity is just going to explain a lot of why people are isolated in their daily activities. Okay, so it sounds like things that are more local tend to be a bit more self-segregating in terms of income and class levels. And so... I'm trying to think, like, where do people go out to a destination? I don't know, like a baseball game at a stadium? I don't know, something like that, where people are kind of making an effort to go to, on a big trip. Yeah, so sports look really good and also travel. There's a lot of hotel chains like the Marriott, which is going to attract people from a lot of different income groups. But the single category with the largest positive effect on mixing was these large full-service restaurant chains. Olive Garden, Applebee's, Chili's, IHOP. Am I missing some here? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. I think those are probably the, the top four from our, from our list. People tend to travel to go to these full-service restaurant chains. That brings them a little bit farther from their neighborhood. Unlike fast food chains, at these places you'll actually have table service. And Maxim and Nathan's hypothesis is that these restaurants' prices are low enough that someone on a low income could go out on a special occasion. And the meals are nice enough that they attract people on high incomes, too. All right, so they're in the same building. They're next to each other table to table. But does that really mean anything for whether they actually talk or exchange ideas or become friends? Is there shoulder contact? Yeah, so it's it's merely an association. Our data is, it's really limited in a way, like we just see people going from, from A to B. And we would want to see more research on this, on, on how often these actually like lead to friendships. Um, so I would call it suggestive at this point. But Darian, we do, of course, have another tool at our disposal. We have microphones. We do, that is true. It's, it's yeah, at nothing. least a tool for anecdata. Hello. And so, about a week ago, you and I decided to test out this hypothesis in the real world, in Bayside, Queens, at an Australian-themed chain restaurant that I at least was surprised to hear you had never been to before, given that you're part Australian. I am part Australian, but I'm also vegetarian, so the Outback Steakhouse didn't sound so appealing. But I will do anything for economics, so we made the pilgrimage. Does it feel like home? What do you think, Darian? I mean, it smells like uh, deep-fried chips, which, yeah, there's a lot of that smell in Australia, for sure. It smells a little like home. So they're highlighting this thing called the Bloomin' Onion, which is a 1,620-calorie dish made out of a deep-fried onion. Good on them for for telling us. I've never seen this in Australia. I thought Bloomin' Onions just grew everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, deep-fried already. Possibly a figment of the owner's imagination about what they do in Australia. In any case, back to our investigation, we swept our eyes around the room. I would say it's blue collar and white collar, but I haven't seen anyone actually wearing a collar. (laughs) We chatted to staff as we waited for our meals, asking whether they thought this really was an economic melting pot. We asked our waiter, Veronica Hughes. Oh, yeah, I definitely see people of all sorts of financial backgrounds coming in and eating. We tried sidling up to people sitting in their booths. Yeah, but most didn't want to talk. No, no, thank you. Fair enough. I mean, they were eating. They were out for a meal. Eventually, the manager said to stop bothering people, which is also fair enough. Boo! (laughs) So we had to strategize how to continue our research from our booth. We had a lot to chew over. Because soon, the meals arrived. 
veggies for Darian, and a lot of meat for me. An 18-ounce bone-in ribeye with mushrooms, as well as grilled onions on the side. And we also have a baked potato with um, chives, sour cream, and bun. And we also got a birthday. After a disturbingly filling meal, we left. Bye, guys. Thank you. But we felt like we hadn't truly gotten to the bottom of the question of whether Outback Steakhouse was a place to make friends across different income levels. So we loitered in the parking lot, staging a stakeout out the back of the Outback Steakhouse. Walking out of the restaurant was Julia D'Antonio, a paralegal. And we were pretty relieved. Julia was a trove of anecdote. You know, you know the TV show Cheers. Absolutely, where everybody knows your name. Yes, honestly, that's how I feel. And a lot of people come here because that's the way they feel. Have you met folks from kind of like different socioeconomic backgrounds at, at the bar when you're kind of oh, like... Oh, absolutely. Hanging? So what's really interesting is I've actually met some physicians, right? Uh, right, so some doctors, so pretty high rollers. Yes, but however, you know, just regular folks, social workers, people like me, secretaries, nurses engineers, I mean, a variety of people, yeah. Have you ever met up with somebody afterwards that you've met in, in the Outback Steakhouse? Oh, yes, yeah. I made friends here for sure, yeah. So, which, you know, that's a really good thing, right? And it's a good thing, not just because friends are amazing. As economist Raj Chetty discovered, it's also great for economic mobility. That research showed that kids from low-income families were going to earn 20% more later in life if they grew up in a community with more cross-class friendships. And Maxim and Nathan's research finds that neighbourhoods with more chain-casual restaurants have more of these friendships. My colleague and friend Darian here is partially from Australia and has never been to an Outback Steakhouse before. Oh, it's, it's not Australian. Oh, we know that. It's just fake Australian. I'm right? learning this. I'm learning this. This episode was produced by Brittany Cronin with engineering by Hans Copeland. It was fact-checked by Sierra Juarez. Kate Kincannon edits the show, and The Indicator is a production of NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor ShipBob. Brands partner with ShipBob to scale from zero to a multi-million dollar company. Need global fulfillment centers and real-time inventory data? Get a free quote at shipbob.com. ShipBob.